Jim. It's Grace at the bank. I checked your Christmas club account. You don't have $500. You have 50. Sorry, computer foul up. Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. We have uh, called each other on the CB radio and gotten to a hootenanny for which episode? Uh, Roger, good buddy. <laughs> this is <laughs> Come season on. four, episode 12. Mm-hmm. The Queen of Peru, right on. <laughs> yep, it sure is. So, uh, <laughs> as you may be able to tell, uh, dear listener, neither of us are very good at CB stuff, but <laughs> it features fairly heavily in this episode. You proposed this one? Right. Do you have a particular particular reasoning behind your choice for this recording? Well, okay, so I have um, two reasons behind it, actually. Uh, the first is that, uh, and they're tied together. The uh, first is that it just kept popping into my head. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking, you remember that episode where Jim was in an RV with that family from the Midwest? <laughs> and then the second is that I keep conflating it with another episode where we have one of Jim's rival PIs. Uh, mm. When we hit one of those episodes, I'll be like, that's the dude, if you remember from back when we did Queen of Peru. But I needed to see this episode to conceptually separate them in my head, because I kept thinking of the two of them together. Um, and also, I was in the mood for an episode that would make me laugh. This yeah. one delivers. This one... uh Definitely sticks out in my mind as well. Uh, I watched it not super recently, but recently enough that I felt like I mostly remembered it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that one's great. It's very funny. Uh, but I'd kind of forgotten a lot of the premise. Like, I really yeah. remembered the the family. And I kind of had forgotten the, the framing, like, plot around it. So it was definitely nice to revisit. This is a very tight episode. Yeah. As one might expect, uh, as we have a solid creative team effort here, uh, written by David Chase. As you said, we're in season four, so we're well in the David Chase era. Juanita Bartlett story consulting and directed by Meta Rosenberg. We got all the, all the greats coming into this one. It definitely shows that snappy, jokey, what, what I'm st- associating with David Chase most yeah. strongly in these scripts. And overall, it's, I said tight earlier. It's very, it's all very focused. There's not anything really extraneous in this episode. Everything pulls together uh, into yeah. one little yeah. tight nugget of a, a charcoal nugget, if you will, of, uh, <laughs> yes. that turns into a beautiful diamond of Rockfordness. This is right in the middle of the fourth season, and we haven't really talked about this uh, specifically before, but I thought it would be interesting to bring up that this season is the season that the show won its Emmy for. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this was the fourth season. It won the, the Best Dramatic Series Emmy for this one. And a lot of the episodes that we've covered from this season have been some of my favorite episodes. Quickie Nirvana. Yeah. Hotel Fears from this season. So, uh, and those were definitely a couple highlights. It is kind of interesting because we're, you know, we're obviously watching them out of order. So it's hard to get a uh, feel for the season itself. Mm -hmm. Unlike, say, if you're binging a show and you can feel the seasons that appeal to you because you're running through them as fast as you can. And then you get to the seasons that don't. And those are the ones where you don't pause when you get up to go to a bathroom or, mm. you know, whatever. But in this case, the, because we're doing it out of order, yeah, I, I don't really kind of contextualize each season as its own thing. Which- well, I think that's why I brought it up just because with that knowledge, it's kind of 
it's it's interesting to see what what is in the episodes in this season that yeah. maybe weren't or are more exaggerated from things in previous seasons. Yeah. But other than that, I see no reason not to get right into our preview montage. Oh yeah. Come on. Uh this is an interesting preview montage. Um it sets the stakes right away. Like it tells you that there is a diamond heist. It's not pulling punches. Mm-hmm. We, we've got Diamond, which is, uh, I guess, detective code for the most expensive thing. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I don't particularly find diamonds all that compelling, but fine. And then we get some, uh, a few jokes here and there, <laughs> and you get some scenes of chases, one of which is an out and out lie. And when we get to that, <laughs> I'll point that out. Uh, but we do get this, this wonderful moment in the RV. Where they're running down the highway, one guy is driving the RV, Jim is yelling at him, and another car is coming up with a shotgun. Watching that, you're just like, I I will sit through a thousand episodes to wait for that scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to see that happen. So, What I thought was interesting watching it with, with a fairly fresh memory of the episode was how much it doesn't show us. Yeah. Like it shows us this kind of exciting, like, oh, this is going to be an action-packed episode, but it doesn't really show us any of the humor. I mean, there's yeah. a, a one-liner joke in there, but it doesn't telegraph, like, this is actually one of the more humorous character study yeah. kind of episodes. It's always interesting with the preview montage what it chooses to emphasize, right? Yeah, And this one's like, you should watch this because it'll be exciting. And it might kind of trick you into sitting down on a Friday night when maybe you weren't going to or something like that. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we say thank you to John Adamus, the writer next door. Find his go-to resources for storytellers and creatives who want to tell better stories at writernextdoor.com. Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, The McLaughlin Group for Nerds, radiovsthemartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis with his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Adam Alexander, Chris, and Dave. And finally, big thank yous to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. We've recently updated our Patreon with new opportunities for sponsorship, so check out patreon.com slash 200 today and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. So we start the Queen of Peru with a nice slow pan over the California uh, landscape. A lot of celebration of the beauty of California yeah. in this episode. Our credits roll uh, just over this kind of empty scene. And then we get a, a pretty unusual shot of the, the Firebird coming directly towards the camera to bring in our good friend, Jim Rockford. This scene, this shot uh, reminds me of the opening credits to Knight Rider, which of course happens (laughs) later. If anything, Knight Rider was inspired by this. It actually filled me with this weird, mournful sense of loneliness based on my own nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I I doubt that that's what this scene was meant to convey, but I I do quite enjoy this. In the arc of the scene, uh, we start with this kind of low-key moment that then is going to kind of turn real quick into some exciting action. The Firebird is being met by another car that's coming over a little bridge. It looks like it's a, a aquifer or a dam of some kind. doesn't really matter. But then they're suddenly blocked in by a van that pulls up behind them from out of nowhere. And guys get out of both cars with guns wearing uh, full-on thick ski masks. Yes. 
Um, Rockford is not alone. Uh, also with him is a man that we, that we come to learn is Stephen Califer, who is played by, uh, George Weiner. Yes. Who we've talked about before in our episode on Feeding Frenzy. I think in that episode I mentioned that I remembered him, but in the character of this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cause he's such like a memorable face and manner. But this is the the last of his uh, four Rockford Files appearances, and in my opinion, probably the best. Oh yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into this character. This character is a good one. Yeah. So so Rockford and uh, our our man Califer here are confronted by two goons in ski masks with guns, and we are dropped directly into what we quickly learn from context uh, is a negotiation for buying back the Borland mm-hmm. diamond that has been stolen. Califer is a representative from Boston Fire and Casualty, who insure the company that insures the diamond. They, of course, have not called in the cops because they want this handled mm-hmm. quietly. You know, And the whole premise here is that if they can recover the diamond for less than the $2 million that it has been appraised for, then that is a net a net positive for the firm because otherwise they have to pay out that value to the owner. One thing I, I really dig about this is that this is a Rockford case in media res, right? Like we're mm-hmm. quite often we see how the case comes to him, and in this case where he's clearly been involved in this case up to this point, like he he's on mm-hmm. retainer and working with uh, Califer. And we'll find out just exactly how well that that does. They go through a negotiation where Califer starts at $300,000 and they respond by shooting out one of the tires of Rockford's <laughs> car. He ends up going going all the way up to offering a million dollars for the return of this diamond. Our two uh, uh, prospective thieves agree to this. And this is where Rockford comes in to negotiate this handoff. This is yet another episode full of great one-liners, um, and a lot of them are just, like, quick, just in the dialogue kinds of things, so I'm not going to try to recap all of them, but we we see Rockford being kind of dubious about this whole thing while this negotiation of the price goes on. This is this scene's a great scene to watch James Gardner at work. Like, as everyone mm-hmm. says something, watch how he reacts to them. You could even have it on mute, and you could, mm-hmm. you could figure out exactly what was going down. And who was uh, suggesting something ridiculous or, you know, what have you. Once Rockford takes over this conversation, he does not give in to their immediate demands of, we'll tell you when and where to make the handoff. First of all, he doesn't even know if they're the ones who took the diamond. They could have heard about it in the paper. What if they're just a couple of yum-yums with a fast line of patter and daddy (laughs) shotgun? But they do have guns. So he uh, talks them into saying... You choose the time, we'll pick the place. Everyone shows up in slacks and t-shirts, no guns, or the deal's off. But the way that he gets to there, you know, when they won't agree to the first thing he says, he just starts walking past them to to find a phone to call for a tow truck. (laughs) Yes. Um, He just completely ignores them. And in that moment, you totally see the the dynamic shift because they don't know what to do. They don't really want right. to shoot yeah. anyone. And he knows it. Yeah, he knows it. And now they know that he knows it. And then they give in to his demand. But they do leave him to, you know, they say, well, you're going to have to take the bus home. And they, they leave them to their own devices. Rockford, of course, has a spare tire and goes over to the to his trunk to, to pull that out. And we get a little button on this where uh, Califer says that he noticed the specific kind of shoe that one <laughs> of the guys was wearing. They should go to the police and get a list of all the people who have bought that kind of shoe 
And then Rockford comes back with, oh, is that like a national list or California a list? <laughs> Southern California list. He is clearly mocking this guy. And then, then we end the scene with him basically saying, are you mocking me? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is definitely one of those um, moments where this is a job for Rockford. Mm -hmm. We've seen this in a few other episodes where somebody is really into the whole mystique of a detective where what, what Rockford does is usually, and probably not while we're watching him on camera is just the boring, tedious day-to-day work of being a detective. And Mm. he knows that like this route that this guy's going is empty and not going to, you know, like it's a, you know, you would have to have a scene where someone's going through the books and uh, looking right. at individual receipts and whatnot. Well, I think as we establish later, Califord does have this kind of picaresque yeah. attitude, right? Where he, he wants to be involved with things that make him feel more important than he is. Yeah, yeah. And the sense of the sense of adventure that seems very wrongheadedly romantic in a way. Um, this button also firmly establishes that while Rockford is on retainer with this guy's company, yep. they don't really like each other. Calfer thinks that he's too cavalier and not taking it seriously, and Rockford thinks that he's yeah. doesn't know what he's talking about. Basically, we uh, cut from here to an underground garage. Two guys not wearing ski masks, but I think. You know, clearly telegraphed as yeah. the goons that we just saw. We get a shot of the guy's shoes. They do stand out with <laughs> these bright white, shiny shoes. This is a chaotic scene um, to kind of show us what's going on with these guys. And we have to backfill some of why this is important later. But they see a car coming down into this garage area that scares them. They try to hide. One of them yells that, uh, you know, says that, like it's that it's his brother and they've come to find him. Then they decide to run for it. Uh, they're afraid of someone named Ginger who jumps out of the car. He's this big guy. Uh, He's clearly uh, just stepped out of a Guy Ritchie film. Yeah, we'll learn more about Ginger later. But he jumps out of this car, sees the two guys running, shoots one of them. The other guy gets into a stairwell and manages to lock the door or something. Ginger takes the guy who he shot and uh, puts him in the car, helps the other guy help him into the car, and they peel out. Our diamond thieves, apparently, are in some kind of trouble of their own. We cut from there to uh, Boston Fire and Casualty, uh, as we know from the window decor. We have more good banter between Califer and Rockford as he's like reviewing the case, basically. Uh, we get a printout of a picture of the diamond, which looks enormous. Rockford is saying that there's something that bothers him about this. It was a big job to steal this diamond. It was in some museum and there are all these security precautions. He doesn't think that two guys could have done it by themselves. Mm -hmm. Where are the other guys? Do they even have it? And Califer loses his patience. He is a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard. And they have a word for people (laughs) like Rockford. Lollygagger. (laughs) Rockford, what was his line? He was like, I can't wait to hear it. But then when he heard it, he goes, that was worth waiting for. <laughs> uh, yeah, Calfer thinks that he's dra- dragging his feet because he just doesn't want to do any work. Rockford comes back with that. Well, I'm on retainer to your company, mm-hmm. so you're stuck with me. Again, lots of good business and dialogue showing us a little bit more of why these guys don't right. really like each other. But they're stuck with each other. But Calfer wants to be done with this business before the weekend. 
because he has exercises. He has National Guard <laughs> exercises to do at Marina Del Rey, to which uh, Rockford responds <laughs> with more mockery. But that is relatively important for our timeline. This is also where we establish that Calfer takes his National Guard mm-hmm. service very seriously. He has a whole line about uh, when society breaks down, you'll be glad <laughs> that the National Guard is the only thing standing between like you and a bunch of screaming welfare animals. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I've met this guy. Mm-hmm. Not this actor, but this character. I've met this character. This reminds me of, in some ways, that early episode when we get into Rockford's military history mm-hmm. and his disdain for that command structure yeah he doesn't see it as capable of getting the job done in any way and you can see this again in his body language here not only is his general disinterest in chains of command Mm -hmm. the national guard is like the fake army right yeah let me be clear uh i actually don't think that about the national guard there's a lot of important things that they do especially like disaster relief and stuff like that But Rockford clearly is like, this is the Mickey Mouse army. Yeah. He was in Korea, right? Rockford's character. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have a brief but key scene where the guy who ran away in the um, parking garage drives up outside Rockford's trailer, looks around, walks towards it with, with a brown paper packet in his hand. Cut from there to the next morning with Rockford being woken up in bed by noises, horrible, horrible engine noises outside. Now, this is, uh, again, another rare shot of the interior of Rockford's bedroom. Mm -hmm. He clearly just sleeps in this room. That's all he does. In this particular configuration, he has a window next to his bed. Yeah. In other episodes, the bed has been against a blank wall. I don't think there's any criminology to do about that. I think it's just... Yeah. (laughs) They put together a bed set when they need it. (laughs) But yeah, he's woken up. We established multiple times through this, both between the clock and then through dialogue, that it is 6.15 in the morning. <laughs> Rockford comes out to see this uh, big camper RV parked next to his trailer and someone doing something really loud with an outboard motor and a barrel, uh, in addition to the kid riding like a like a dirt bike in circles around, around his trailer. And here's where we meet our real stars of the show. Yeah. Welcome, friends, to the Ronco family <laughs> uh, from Peru, Indiana. Our patriarch here, Carl, is played by uh, Ken Swafford, who has made many other Rockford Files appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of those great faced character actors. Yeah. We have already seen him in the uh, Aaron Ironwood episode. He played the FBI agent, Agent Patrick, that comes in at the end. This is the fourth of his five Rockford Files appearances. He also has a tie-in to my other favorite show. Uh, He was in the Candidate for Crime episode of Columbo. Oh. Where he was the campaign manager that got murdered. (laughs) And then later he was in 11 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. So (laughs) great murder mystery show pedigree. Yes, yes. The rest of his family uh, had very little acting credits, actually. <laughs> Either the wife or the daughter. This is the only acting credit she mm. has. And the the son was like a child actor and then kind of trailed off uh, through the 80s. Anyway, the Ronco family. Um, <laughs> man, I don't even know where to start with this one. Oh, uh, well, I think obviously you start with the same way that they start. 
which is the outboard motor in a barrel. Uh, it looks like it's a trash barrel that he's repurposed mm-hmm. for this. They're in the parking lot. He's got the outboard motor set on top of that, and he's running it to do something, uh, something motor-related. He has to, like, flush the tubes. Th- this We hear a lot about this motor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, he has to, like, flush it, and it's not working quite right. Nothing describes this family more than that image. And also Rockford and Ronco having a conversation, both of them yelling over the noise of the motor (laughs) because he doesn't turn it off. Yeah, this so this whole scene is basically just introducing this family to us, right? So there's not like real action that happens, but basically because there is a noise or- ordinance and it is a residential area, so Rockford would appreciate it if they could keep it down. They're from Indiana, so they don't understand. They're like, but this is a public beach. Well, it's California. All the beaches are public. Yeah. But this is also a residential area. See the houses. <laughs> When they actually introduce, uh, Carl's wife, Dot, makes the, the good call of, oh, Rockford. There's a town in Illinois called Rockford. <laughs> yes. Just true. I've been there. Have friends from there. And she has a friend there whose, whose husband's name is Jim. Just good small talk, uh, Midwestern small talk. Like, I get the feeling that this family, they're meant to be a caricature of, uh, a Midwestern family, but they're not too far off. I mean, they, they don't <laughs> strike me. As too over the top for what I experienced growing up in the Midwest. Their son is named Sean and their daughter is Shireen. Their bathroom's broken, so they ask if Shireen can use Rockford's, uh, <laughs> where we get some great eye rolling from her and the admonition from, from her mother to make sure to spray everywhere. <laughs> We get the portrait of these kind of surly and rebellious kids who have been dragged on this cross-country RV thing by their over-enthusiastic father. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be seeing, we'll be seeing this family again. Is there anything else from here that you wanted to touch on though? Um, I, I guess what is important here is how incredibly friendly, uh, Carl Ronco is without actually being friendly, right? Mm-hmm. We call that Midwestern nice. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's just completely affable. He's got this body language that's just warm and inviting. And he's just not listening to what Rockford needs. Mm-hmm. Nobody there is paying any attention to what anyone needs. They're just being completely friendly. Uh, and you do also get this sort of thing about the family being at their wits end with their children who <laughs> just mm-hmm. cannot put up with them either. Like the whole bit between when uh, Sean, the, the young boy, shows up on his motorbike and his dad introduces him to Jim. And then he says, hi, say hi and shake his hand. Like there's like four steps that he doesn't accomplish, mm-hmm. even though clearly the the negotiation between Sean and Jim is, you know, it's done. You just had to nod. There is one thing that does come back later, uh, which is that Carl asks Sean, how bad do we blow our ETA? Right. And then Sean's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. And then he goes into this whole thing about like, you know, I taught you how to calculate our ETA. <laughs> you take the map and you look at it, you divide it by our rate. <laughs> yeah. This is something that, that Carl try, has tried to pass down to his son, who's like, I don't know, 13 or 14 maybe. Mm-hmm. And and this kid just does not yeah. care. But this thing, this this bit about the ETA actually comes back later. I should say, and the 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 daughter. I think she's fifteen or even younger than that. I'm bad at judging ages, but yeah, she's definitely meant to be young. Yeah. So these are like early teenage with her her boyfriend. Oh, we haven't been introduced to the boyfriend's name. Yet. Oh, we'll learn about the boyfriend <laughs> later. Yeah. All right, so we get the Ronco family, uh, and then uh, Jim gives up on getting any more sleep, mm-hmm. and then we go from there to this this exchange uh, for the the diamond. 
Rockford and Califer are in this park. We get them in, as promised, slacks and t-shirts. So we get to see Rockford in his uh, in his white his white undershirt. I have to say, when he suggested this dress code uh, a few scenes ago, I just couldn't wait. I remember thinking that it was that was a reference or something like that was like a, yeah. a way to say don't bring your guns. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't realize that he literally meant shirts and slacks, no other clothes. So it was pretty good. But anyway, they they pull up. Rockford doesn't like the smell of it. They don't see anyone there. Uh, and then there's a payphone that starts ringing. So already this is different from the deal yeah. that they'd negotiated. The voice on the phone wants them to go to a different car that's already at the park and drive that to a abandoned or closed amusement park that's nearby. Rockford doesn't doesn't think it's a good idea, but he is being paid as a consultant. Yes. <laughs> that is his consultation. It's up to Califer. <laughs> And uh, he does want to do it because he has he has this big silver briefcase, yeah, with the million dollars in cash in it. He just wants to get the deal done. He's he's got uh, a couple good lines here. You know, they get the phone call, and uh, it goes, "What do you think?" And Rockford's like, "It's a whoopee cushion." Yeah, <laughs> just a great way to just be like, "It's not even a real fart." Yeah. <laughs> This fart is fake. Yes. Yeah, he's got that line where he says, I get paid as a consultant. I, yeah, I've consulted. You can do whatever you want. So Califord goes and gets the other car. We get a little shot of Rockford uh, actually rolling up his <laughs> yes. window because um, they're leaving his car, which I think we both noticed because uh, <laughs> he usually just leaves his car like unlocked and whatever. But just in case Angel comes by and needs to stuff 30 grand in the door. <laughs> this sequence follows follows them to this amusement park where one of the goons comes out in his uh, t-shirt and stocking mask. <laughs> they show him the money. Rockford wants to know where his partner is. And he says, oh, he's, he's watching you through a scoped rifle just in case there's any funny business. <laughs> but once the money has been presented and they're like, all right, show us the diamond. Uh, he's like, well... I don't have it with me. I put it in the ashes of Rockfield's barbecue yeah. last night. <laughs> he uh, said there was a change in his personal situation and he had to add more safeguards. And so Rockford's like, yeah, so now you're working alone. But <laughs> I never said that. So his whole deal is one of you stay here. The other one, go check it out. Get the diamond. Then you can call me on my car phone. I'll take the money and we'll be done. <laughs> I like how... Uh, once Rockford starts questioning this this whole scheme, what I wrote down was he gets really hard luck. He's like, come on, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this thing's made of wool. I'm sweating to yeah, death. Yeah. Come on. Ah, oh, that moment. That's such a... That moment's great. Because it's such a real moment. So, as often happens in the Rockford Files, we actually have a couple stories happening here, right? And mm -hmm. one story is Rockford's story, which is that he's being saddled with this Midwestern family, right? We don't know how or why or to what extent yet, because all we know mm -hmm. is that he they woke him up and they just kind of invaded his space. But it's funny, and we enjoy it. Every interaction that Rockford has... With them and with Califer, you know, it's they're all wearing on his pa eternal patience, and mm -hmm. uh, it's fun to watch his reaction to it. However, on the other side, we have the thieves, the diamond thieves, and their story is a dark, dark story, right? Like <laughs> you said that he's that uh, uh, Ginger was like out of a Guy Ritchie yeah. movie. Their entire plot is is a heist gone wrong plot. Yeah, that plot is also from a Guy Ritchie yeah. movie. <laughs> We're gonna find out that Ginger is the British crime boss that everyone mm -hmm. fears that's at the center of a you know, Guy Ritchie film. And this here is, this guy is at his wit's end. We, we've witnessed his partner getting shot. We don't know his fate. 
the one thing he has is he knows where the diamond is. Yeah. And it's in Rockford's barbecue. <laughs> a diamond he like he won't even carry on him, mm-hmm. right? Because he knows that, that somebody catches up to him and takes the diamond. He's dead. Um, so Rockford offers to stay and Califer doesn't trust him to stay with the million dollars. He's like, I have the million dollars right here. Yeah. It is signed out in my name and I am not letting it out of my sight. So he stays. Rockford goes. He walks up to his trailer. There's no barbecue. He looks around. The RV is gone. And he just goes, damn, something bad has happened with this barbecue. He calls, uh, the car phone. Califer's on the phone. Rockford very specifically tells him not to react. When he tells him that the barbecue is gone, <laughs> Kaufer, of course, reacts. The other guy panics, I think. This is one of the greatest Rockford fights I've ever seen. Uh, go on. Kaufer uh, swings the briefcase full of money at him. He grabs it and pulls it out of his hands. Kaufer backs up and puts his hands up and goes, watch out, I'm a brown belt. And starts doing like a key eye. Our, our goon just punches him in the face and then drives away with the money. That's it. He's out. So, of course, we go from here to the police station. So we get uh, a lot of the Rockford cast and just like just enough to let us know that Rockford Mm. lives his life surrounded by these people. So we have Dennis and Lieutenant Chapman asking him for a specific description of the barbecue uh, or what what some might refer to as a grill uh, in this day and age uh, in order to make the report. It is a Cookmaster 24 inch with adjustable grill. <laughs> and then we see that this room also contains Califer and Beth Davenport. We get the uh, traditional Rockford Chapman each trying to one up each other and goad each other. The scene has a lot of good humor, but again, just better, better watched yeah, than described. Yeah. None of the people in this room like each yeah. other. <laughs> Like we have the Califer and Jim, uh, Jim and Chapman, Chapman and Califer, because they're like, oh, some civilian called in <laughs> to look up everyone who bought these shoes. Was that you? And he's like, it could have worked, but they've both been involved in an illegal activity, which is try- arranging this payoff. So they're going to hold Rockford for 24 hours, but Califer gets to go free. Because the general called, and of course, Chapman is also in the National Guard, and we get this whole diatribe from Jim about the paper mache yeah, tanks uh, and like all the, yeah. which could not be calculated to uh, piss off Chapman more, I think. Yeah, and we get, uh, you know, Beth doing some of her legal, using some legalese to uh, be like, you can't actually charge right, Jim with anything. Right. But because of whatever illegal activity yeah. they were complicit in, apparently is enough to hold Rockford for 24 hours. I, it's a thing that I had to put in the time schedule here because at this point, I assume that Jim is on. Yeah, he's on retainer. I'm assuming it's his 200 a day. Don't know. But I, I was like, okay, he's been at this for two days and now there's a third that they may not pay him because he's been in prison. This scene has this great moment at the end where Jim tells Chapman. Uh, as he's taking Califer to tell him to turn on the lights and siren and give Stevie Boy a thrill. He likes pretending he's big boy. Oh, it's good. We then go to uh, the car with our, what I start calling, Ginger's gang. Yeah. We have Ginger, who is, as we said, this larger, striking jaw, big boned kind yeah. of guy. Very intimidating with a uh, variably well done British accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, he's supposed to be British. Yeah, I don't even know if the accent comes and goes, but it's more like slang comes and goes, and I can't really tell if it's in relation to who he's talking to or just the actor going in and out. It doesn't really matter, but he's the boss. And then we have uh, a balding guy who's who's the driver. His name's Lou, and the guy who got shot was actually his brother, Mike. 
Ginger leaves the car and we get kind of a monologue by Lou because Mike is in the back seat holding his stomach, having been shot and just dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Not going to the hospital, not anything. Yeah, this is kind of horrendous to witness. It's actually really sad. Yeah. Both Lou and and Mike are cowed by Ginger here. Mm -hmm. The fact that Ginger can walk away from them and that they're brothers, and it clearly pains Lou that his brother is in this condition, and Lou is clearly a big guy who, you know, can handle his own, and still they refuse to help his brother out. Like, that is... Mm -hmm. Very telling there. Yeah. Lou kind of monologues to Mike, but to us, mm -hmm. kind of filling in a little bit of the story, mostly establishing the, the relationship between the three of them. And also Donnie, who's the other guy, the guy that we last saw uh, punching Califer. They're the ones who stole the diamond. But then Donnie convinced Mike to double cross Ginger. And that's what got Mike into all this trouble. And that hurts Lou. Yeah. That Mike did this without even talking to his brother, right? Double crossing his brother. Ginger comes back. Uh, he confirms that Rockford is being released. So we have been been there for the day or whatever. One of them, I don't remember if he asked, like, shouldn't we take him to the hospital or something? Or maybe Mike's like, oh, it really hurts. There's some something about how Mike is like in pain and needs help. Yeah. And Ginger's just like, I'm going to leave you for the circling birds. The circling birds. <laughs> and we're laughing, but he is. Yeah. He is dead serious. Yeah. He's basically telling him you're, you're dead. But sure enough, uh, Rockford is being released. Rocky had to raid the emergency fund behind his toaster for the bail money. Rockford is upset because that was going to be his buy-in money for a blackjack game. <laughs> and then Rocky does not feel so bad about it. Yes. Rockford makes it clear that he needs to go find his grill, find yeah. his diamond. That's like, it's not your job. Why do you need to do that? It turns out that the insurance company canceled his retainer. Yes. And that was a lot of money to him. Yeah. So he needs to find this diamond or else. He's still out. Yeah. Ginger's gang watches this interaction and then uh, goes to, to, to follow them as they go to recover Rockford's car. This also is the final appearance of Beth. In the Rockford Files. Oh, no. This is the last episode that she was in well, she um, before the 90s movies. Huh. Yeah. That wasn't much of a Beth episode. They At the time, they didn't know that it was going to be her last one. Because yeah. we talked about this a little bit in the, uh, the episode uh, that we did with... Emily Carabas, mm -hmm. the, the Dark and Bloody Ground, which was a Beth episode. But because she was contracted with Universal, who also produced the show, the nature of her contract was such that between the fourth and fifth season, they insisted on more money for her mm -hmm. than James Garner's production company was prepared or able to pay. So everyone else could do independent negotiations, yeah. but Gretchen Corbett's contract was linked with the studio and they played hardball. Yeah. So, you know, they weren't able to hire her for the later seasons. Jerk holes. I know. It's a real shame. Kind of a nothing note for, uh, yeah. for Beth to go out on. She's in the episode. She got her paycheck, right? Which is great. But plot-wise, not really an important um, part of it. But you know who is an important part of it? The beach lifeguard, Skip. <laughs> yeah, Skip. Who has been in other episodes. I think this might be the first 200 a day that he's yeah. been more than just like someone we see on the beach. Right. Skip does not look good in this particular episode, too. <laughs> no, Skip is a real uh, wannabe player. Yeah. Rockford uh, 
goes to Skip to uh, find out if he knows where the Roncos went Mm -hmm. uh, because they left with his barbecue and he wants it back. Skip does have some information for him, but he doesn't give it up until he receives what looks to me to be a $3 bribe. I I written down in my uh, my notes here less than five. Like I I, I can't imagine. Uh, but the thing is, Rockford comes upon Skip and he is surrounded with women, mm-hmm. like seagulls that he's feeding. <laughs> And he shoes them off when Rockford goes to talk to him. Uh, he goes into salacious detail about how the Ronco's daughter was hitting on him. But his description of it. It's so gross. It's so gross. We know that she's very young. He's mo- mm-hmm. half his age, at least. Yeah, I can't, I can't tell if he's supposed to be like an older teenager or like a young 20-year-old. Yeah. Well, he was saying something about having to retire from being a, a lifeguard because it's not going to... At 35? I don't, yeah, I don't think he's actually 35 at that point, but it's just, it's bad news all around. Um, but it also sounds like he's bragging about stuff that never happened. Yeah, he was like, I was taking her up to, you know, make out point, whatever. For the coupe de grasse. <laughs> But she decided not to go through with it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she did start talking about her punk rocker boyfriend back home. Yes. Wears a vest covered in safety pins, and he hates to see a girl going that direction. His line, he's like, look, I told her, real punks aren't faithful to anybody. <laughs> like, oh, what a skis Oh, yeah. And this thus begins my love affair for her punk rock boyfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. You'll be on punk rock boyfriend watch. Yeah. But uh Rockford's $3 bribe does get the information that they were going to go up to Solvang, uh maybe the Hertz Castle. His way of getting the bribe out of Rockford is telling Rockford about all the stuff he does for him. Where he watches mm-hmm. out, he makes sure people don't back up into his car, which is an important bit uh, that <laughs> comes back later. You know, this is all these things. He goes, do you think of me at Christmas? Do I get anything from you? No. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. At the end of the whole thing, he goes, oh, I remembered you at Christmas. I just didn't do anything about it. Right. <laughs> Stone cold. Stone cold. So Rockford now has a uh, has a, has a destination yes. to head for to try and catch this RV. Our next scene is the Ronco family in full, full splendor. This is mostly a character scene. Yeah. This is where we get to see like Carl and the family and like how they interact. They've pulled over the RV. Um, They're on the Pacific Coast Highway. There's a beach. We see the beautiful ocean. Carl and Dot come around the, the RV. He's complaining about the kids. That they're, um, that they're a couple of Martians. Like, we're doing this for them. You'd think they'd appreciate it. And she's like, this is as much for you as it is for them. <laughs> like, why are you pretending like it's, you know, yeah. something you don't want to do? And then he goes into a reminiscence about how this beautiful California beach reminds him of Japan uh, in his <laughs> Navy days and having a case of Japanese beer with his Navy buddies. And then how he ran into one of them in uh, Columbus. And now the guy sells orthopedic shoes. And then he starts staring off into the distance. Mm-hmm. And his wife is staring at him. And it's it's really somber. Mm-hmm. You can feel him feeling his mortality, which is great. It's a great moment. It's uh, In just a, just a couple lines, we see so much of the motivation of why these people are where they are. Yeah. Why are these people in an RV? Why are they in California? Like, you know, you see this this father trying to recapture that sense of adventure, but he's a little resentful that he's saddled with these kids who don't appreciate the things he did. Like, it's all in these, just these couple of lines. And then the kids 
start bringing out these plastic bags of trash and dot yells at sean because he needs to bring out a bag like each of them are supposed to bring out one bag of trash and she goes in and starts giving orders about what they're supposed to pick up (laughs) when she could be doing it herself right like uh, and we see the kids being like surly and you know god mom (laughs) this family that just does not seem to have any connective tissue yeah which is a little sad but they're also very annoying like i don't really want to spend a lot of time with these people (laughs) no while they're taking out the trash um carl goes to uh find the windshield spray opens the little hatch on the side of the rv and what the sam hill is this (laughs) you didn't even empty out the barbecue before putting it away and then as he looks through it he realizes this isn't even our barbecue He was hurrying because he was getting yelled at by his dad. He broke the leg off the other one. So he just took the one that was available. And you see Carl being like, well, you stole that and that's wrong. But it's too late now. So we should just keep it. (laughs) And then they just leave a pile of trash bags and dump out the ash. And just leave this pile of trash on the side of this beautiful highway, like overlooking the beach. Oh, these terrible people. (laughs) So in my youth, I remember there being like massive media campaigns to fight litter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, well, this is definitely those terrible people. I also think that this probably isn't an example of them being unusual. Like, I think that yeah, in this day and age, right. people were just like, yeah, it's the side of the road. Trash can go there. We're not monsters upon this earth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I definitely think that it's supposed to say these are terrible people, but I don't think it's as bad as, like, a, a modern audience viewing it would. Sure. You know, like. Yeah, no, you're you're probably right. We do uh, end with a dramatic shot on this giant diamond just sitting yes. in a pile of ash <laughs> on top of a trash bag. <laughs> I like that we've positively established that that's where it is. We go back to the beach where we get a brief scene of Ginger beating up Skip to get the same information (laughs) that he gave to Rockford. And Skip gives it up. Look, anyone who who's satisfied with a $3 bribe is not going to hold back information when a guy just starts punching you in the stomach. Right. Right. So now they also know that there's an RV on the way to Solvang with this uh, with this diamond in it. And then this is kind of interesting. So from here, we go to see Califer. So this is clearly now it's the weekend because mm. it's Califer at his National Guard gig talking to someone about deployment. Um, Ginger comes in claiming to be from the insurance company. It's like, there's been a development in the case with the diamond. They need you to come in. So Califer's like, oh, well, that's his actual job. So yeah, he dismisses the sergeant who's also in the tent. And once that guy goes, Ginger pulls a gun on him. Uh, we don't want any trouble, uh, you know, with all the, all your soldiers outside or something like that. All the boys with guns, I think, or something along those lines in a very British mobster accent. So Calfer's like, look, you know, no trouble. We don't even have firing pins. <laughs> so Ginger hustles Calfer over to his car and shoves him in the back with his uh, gut shot <laughs> goon. They say they're going to go drive through every RV park on the way to Solvang and find <laughs> this RV with the diamond. Now, I'm not from California and I haven't spent a lot of time in this particular area. Solvang's, you know, it's a real place. It's apparently the Danish capital of America. It was founded by Danes. 
and you go they have like a, a replicas right. of like landmarks and stuff like that and cultural festivals and, and stuff stuff like that which i did not know but i was i also wanted to check malibu to solvang is 100 miles oh wow on the pacific okay, yeah. coast highway <laughs> for those of us not in california i wanted to establish how big of a task yeah <laughs> this is going to be and it's a lot it's it's literally cruising 100 miles of roadway looking for a particular rv or a particular piece of trash yeah. Uh, and I have a question for you. Do you recall when they put Califer in the car, if uh, Donnie was in it? I don't think so, right? It's just Lou, Ginger, uh, Mike, who was shot. Yeah, I don't think they have Donnie. No. Okay. Most of the time I saw Donnie, he was wearing that wool ski mask. Right. Even down to the moment where it got too hot for him, so he took his t-shirt off, <laughs> which is a wonderful scene. I couldn't remember, because I don't, I didn't think so, but then I was like, maybe he is, because I would explain something later, but... So now we have our goons, they have Califer with them, and they're going to find this RV. And we go to, to Rockford, cruising in his car, making calls on the CB radio, looking for Hoosiers, this is Big 500, <laughs> looking for Hoosiers, trying to track down this rv from peru indiana <laughs> this is a wonderful strategy oh, it's so good the cb con is great there's something about rockford being able to tie into you know like the common mm -hmm. the common folk of the u.s right like he does it when he does his oklahoma thing he, like, he's just pulling out indiana references left and right he uh knows about lakes that are there and he knows like he calls himself uh, the big 500, obviously after the Indianapolis 500, you know, like it, <laughs> it's just wonderful that like part of Rockford's con repertoire is just knowing how to pretend that he's a native from like any particular state. He doesn't really put on an accent really, but it's more of an attitude yeah. or like a cadence yeah. doing these CB calls. And I like how this is a, a two layer strategy. One is he's just, he's just calling for Hoosiers, right? Breaker, breaker, yeah. <laughs> you know, calling for anyone from the great state of Indiana. But if he can't find the Rongos that way, he's also saying, well, we're going to have a, an Indiana jamboree at noon tomorrow at the San Simeon campground. Hope to see you all there. So you can kind of see that, like, if approach A doesn't work, yeah. maybe approach B, someone will tell someone will get to them and then they'll come because they're totally the kind of people who would go to a all Indiana RV jamboree. <laughs> Uh, but he, he strikes out on the person that he raises on this particular call. And then we get a shot of him passing the pile of trash as he heads up north on the coast. We uh, cut to him waking up at 6 a.m. bright and early as he slept in the front seat of his car. A carton of milk on the dashboard <laughs> indicating that he whatever he ate, uh, that's that's where it was stashed. And his little travel clock with an alarm. You know, this is he's roughing it um, trying to track the wrong goes down. Who we then go to as uh, Carl is trying to flush another flush the motor again in another barrel <laughs> and dots out there with her her hair and curlers spraying shoes like with a, a spray that I only associate with bowling alleys. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's like dressing him down for always messing with that motor. It would be nice to go water skiing sometime. Right. If you ever got that working and he's like, oh, well, there's something wrong with it. And I got to flush the tubes and, you know, defensive about his, his outboard motor. She even accuses it of becoming a hobby of his or something like that. There's, oh, yeah. Domestic quarreling about something that's clearly a longstanding issue. But then Carl hears Big 500 on a CB 
and dashes into the cab in order to answer it. Clearly, Rockford knows, you know, once he answers, knows who's, who it is. And, and Carl doesn't know who Big 500 is. Right. But he's so excited about going to the Jamboree <laughs> that he ignores the first couple times that Rockford's like, so where are you exactly? Yeah. <laughs> where are you right now? Yeah. But then he uh, finally gets him to say that they're camped out in Tuna Canyon and Rockford pulls a big U across the highway. So this is the lie in our uh, preview montage. Because mm. I think we get this scene in the preview montage and you think to oh, yourself. pulling the U? Yeah, you think to yourself, hot damn, a firebird chase. Nope. I also appreciate how Rockford has a encyclopedic knowledge of all of the campgrounds. So he knows yes. which one that is. <laughs> yeah, so Rockford uh, rolls into the RV park. He sees uh, son Sean. Has him bring him to his dad. This scene is intercut a little bit with uh, some shots of Ginger and the gang um, as they're also searching. Yes. And in, a, in, in an interesting way. So Rockford comes into this campsite and then we have a shot of Ginger's car going off the highway on an off ramp to something that says campground. Yeah. We'll see where this goes. We get two shots of people passing the trash. Like, it, the camera lets us know when somebody has gone beyond the right. objective of their mission. But yeah, we get the Rockford Ronco showdown. Yes. Rockford just wants his barbecue. And then he wants to know where, once he sees the barbecue, he wants to know where did they dump out the ashes. And Carl's, he's a little defensive. He tries to pass it off on his son. Yeah. <laughs> and then his son's like, no, I, I told him I, right. I I stole his barbecue. It's like, okay, well, that's good. It's good that you owned up to what you did. He's like, but then you said we should keep it. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> so Carl's being defensive. We dumped it by the highway. Why should I know? <laughs> Dot tells him to, uh, don't be a Budinsky. Yes. <laughs> Which sounds like an extremely Midwestern yes. turn of phrase. Rockford wants Carl to go back with him down the highway and show him where he dumped the ashes. They go around the RV where they're a little more alone. And Carl reveals that he thinks that this is kind of suspicious, which it is. Why mm -hmm. do you want to know where the ashes are so badly? You know, I want you to tell me why. And Rockford threatens, you know, threatens him, threatens to, to punch him in the face or something. Uh, and then we cut from there back to Ginger's gang coming out of the campground and back onto the highway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a nice little moment of like, oh, here oh, it comes. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, they're still searching. Haven't found it yet, uh, which I think is a, n a nice little end run around our assumptions of how right, right. that framing was going to work. But when we cut back, it's to Ronco saying the diamond, this famous diamond. And I realized that we just got a sneaky Beth cut, a sneaky version of the cut where Rockford's saying, no, I'm not going to do that to Beth. Oh, and then yes. in the next scene, he's doing what she's what she wants. Yes. We cut from him saying, I'm going to punch your face in. I don't need to tell you anything. Mm -hmm. Just tell me where the ashes are. And then when we come back, he's told Carl <laughs> why he wants the ashes. Yes, that's good. Yeah, I had not noticed that. Um, turns out that Carl Ronco is in the insurance business himself. He knows how this works. So he'll help, but he wants to split the recovery fee. Mm -hmm. And Rockford is trying to bluster his way into not agreeing to do that when another RV backs into the Firebird. Because... Clearly because Skip isn't around to warn them. <laughs> it busts one of the wheels. And then with a triumphant smile, Carl Ronco offers <laughs> to drive Rockford back down the coast if he reconsiders the recovery yeah. deal. So, yeah, uh, I think Rockford, out of options, is then joins them in the RV and they're back on the road. 
Dot offers him a jello mold, which he politely declines. And we get another bit about the boyfriend here, right? Yes, this is where we find out the boyfriend's name, which is Joey Sick. <laughs> uh, he's It's not his real name, clearly, but he decides that he's going to be called Joey Sick. And this is mm-hmm. the moment I truly fall in love with poor Joey Sick. The, the punk rocker from Indiana? Yes, the Indiana punk rocker from 1977, who I'm hoping, beyond hope, is far closer to Shireen's age than uh, Skip is. Yeah, I mean, 1977 is basically the birth of punk rock. This is the year that the Ramones broke and the Sex Pistols broke and New York was the, it was a little earlier in the UK, but then New York was like the punk rock capital of the world in 1977. So I kind of appreciated the little, a little nod to that in the Rockford Files because the (laughs) Rockford Files not very up on music trends, I would say. That does, I mean, we haven't talked about the other bit here, which is my heart goes where the wild goose goes. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a Frankie Lane song that uh, Ronco, the patriarch of the clan, says, speaks to him. And then Rocky, in a a later scene, was like, yeah, that's that's how men used to sing. So there's something going on there, too. There's a little bit of contrast, yeah. I looked this song up on on, um, YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's worth checking out. It's actually kind of a good song, but it's also, go listen to this song and imagine it speaking to the souls of Carl Ronco and Rocky. That That's your homework, everyone. <laughs> and this whole argument is because she's been wanting to make a long distance call to talk to her boyfriend right. this entire trip. The whole trip. And they trip. keep on promising her that they will. Now they have to go look for this stupid diamond. <laughs> uh, kids who might be listening to this podcast on their smartphones. <laughs> in, in 1977, first of all, you didn't have a phone that you carried around with you, which you probably were aware of. But also, if you wanted to call someone in another state, they would charge you an enormous amount of money per minute. It would have been a treat. Absolutely not the sort of thing you would just let your kid do. You would have mm-hmm. to schedule it and budget for it. So, no phone call for Joey Sick. Uh, again, this is intercut a little bit with Ginger's gang. Um, we have a bit of dialogue where one of them says, it feels like we've been to 100 of these places. And Ginger's like, we've been to 37. So he's very precise, very yeah. methodical. And then their car passes the RV. Lou, who's driving, that camper had a Indiana plates and said Peru on it. <laughs> I thought he was going to recognize Rockford. Right. But he doesn't. It's actually the camper, which which is more likely, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of elements in this particular episode. So, for instance, they steal uh, Rockford's grill. You could have easily mm-hmm. done a situation where the guy comes in and puts the diamond in what he thinks is Rockford's grill, but is actually Ronco's grill. And then mm-hmm. that happens. But then you would have to then explain how Rockford figured that out. Right. It makes for better business down the line to have them have the son steal it, but it also gets the thing. Like this episode does a lot of things like that where it's like, here's a little decision that we made mm-hmm. that helps this whole thing make more sense as it's happening. Right. This episode has almost no exposition. Yeah. Right. Other than just the like they stole this diamond. Like that's pretty much the only exposition in the whole episode. Everything else you either see lose monologue. 
Yeah, and lose monologue. But yeah. Um, so yeah, because th- those are the only things that happen before the episode. Yeah. And then everything else is on screen and we see the A to B logic. And it also plays into the characters like, why did they steal his grill? Because the kid broke the their own grill. Why did he break his own grill? Because his dad was shouting at him. Right. Why was his dad shouting at him? Because he was angry because the kid wasn't doing what he wanted. And that's part of their character portrait. <laughs> it all flows together. Right. And then why is Rockford angry? Not just because he needs the diamond, but because they stole his grill. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, where he grills his steaks and his fish. Well, in any case, they recognize Lou recognizes the camper, so they pull their own U across the highway <laughs> and uh, give chase. They start by honking and trying to wave it to pull over. So Carl's driving, and he's like, "This guy wants me to pull over. Go around." You know, he slows yeah. down and like gives him room. And I think there's a moment which I read as Ginger trying to get them to pull over because if they pull over, that's good. But if that doesn't work they're still in position for the next thing he's going to do, which is the shotgun. Yeah. Kind of similar to the pretending to be from the insurance company, but then actually having a gun. Like he actually has his own little plan about how to do things, which I liked. So this is a pretty chaotic, but short action sequence where Rockford. So Rockford looks over and says, that's one of the guys from the ransom meeting. Yeah. Which was the only thing that stuck out to me because didn't he not see their faces? Yeah. So. And wouldn't you've seen Califer? Yeah. See, that's the thing, right? Like it could be Califer that he saw, but it's a weird way for him to say it. Right. Except that he wouldn't say that's Califer because why would Ronco know who Califer was? And, mm-hmm. and he would not see the faces of the guys at the, the ransom meeting. Yeah. It's just, it's a little, it's a little bit of a weird. It's just a little blip that I thought that Califer being in the car would have been the hint would be the excuse yeah. for him to know who it was, but whatever, maybe it was a script change yeah. at the last minute. Maybe it's just something that no one caught, but that was the only thing in this episode that jumped out to me as like, wait a second. <laughs> it doesn't matter too much in any case. Cause it's also pretty natural to look at and be like, they have a gun. Yes. In any case, he sees the gun. He starts yelling at Carl to try to, to sideswipe him. And Carl, like, doesn't really know what to do, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, we get this weird kind of jerky back and forth. And then we get a great little shot of the back where the kids and Dot are, like, bumping around. And we get stuff flying at them. And it's clearly being thrown <laughs> from behind the camera. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely uh, a Star Trek model of uh, physics going on here. But Rockford finally uh, loses patience shoves Carl out of the way and gets into the driver's seat. And then uh, Lou pulls up in front of them and then turns so that they're like blocking them on the road. And Rockford just plows into <laughs> yes. the car, just plows into the back so that it spins them and sends them down the uh, incline between the road and the uh, the beach. So the car flips over on its hood. Rockford pulls over, runs down, grabs the shotgun out from whoever was holding it, who's clearly stunned. Uh, Carl joins him and they start pulling guys out of the car and yell, yell at Dot to go call the highway patrol. Our, our bad guys are brought to justice. Yes. <clears throat> One thing that I appreciate here, kind of in retrospect, uh, relative to what you were saying about their story being very dark, mm-hmm. is that they pull out the guy who was shot. Mike and Rockford. Yeah, yeah. Either he or Carl like supports him, looks at him. One of them goes like, oh, this guy's been shot. And then the other one says, oh, he'll be okay. I like that that saves it from being too dark. Right. Once they're in custody, he is going to get the medical treatment he needs. Yeah, we're not, he's not going to die in the back of this car here. For such a lighthearted episode, I liked that we didn't go full darkness with what happens with our little crew here. 
But yeah, so that was a, a an exciting action sequence where Rockford just wins by the by dint of being in the bigger car. Yes. So Rockford's survival instinct is to to subdue the guy with the shotgun, uh, and in the process, it will do probably considerable damage to this RV. Yeah. That may be what comes back and bites them. I just love that it's that there's complete disregard for this family's vehicle. Mm-hmm. You could argue that Rockford's the reason why they're in the car that's being shot at. <laughs> he might be a, being a little more cavalier with this than he would be with like Rocky's truck. Yeah, yeah. Though he would, he is willing to like crash his car into things if he needs to. When I, he doesn't think twice when it's somebody's life on the line but uh thankfully no one's life is on the line anymore everyone comes out of this okay um and we finish up our episode back in rockford's trailer uh califer is on the phone and then we get a pan over and we see uh carl and dot sitting on the couch um rockford is is standing in between them uh califer is getting final instructions from boston fire and casualty which indeed has decided to pay a recovery fee of Five tenths of one percent. Yeah. <laughs> Not half a percent. <laughs> Not 0.5 percent, but five tenths. Which would be, Rockford does the sum in his head, $15,000. <laughs> so that would have been, then, somebody's got to pull out his calculator. So half a percent of three million is 15,000. Uh, for those playing along at home, I used the free 42 emulator of the HP 42S uh, to calculate. That's three million dollars. So that would have been probably the appraised value of the diamond. Which I believe they told us the appraised value was $2 million. That's what I thought too. So uh, maybe Rockford got his money wrong? I'm sure it's just a script in- inconsistency. Yeah. I can't remember what math they were doing in the, because they're talking about splitting it, right? They were going to split 15000 So Ronco was like $7,500. So, in any case, it doesn't matter. The point is, <laughs> apparently, they're valuing this diamond at $3 million for a $15,000 recovery fee. Ronco is excited to get his $7,500 half of that recovery fee, but, uh-uh, Califer <laughs> yes. confirms that Ronco works for this other insurance company back in Indiana who handles the Boston Fire and Casualties Auto Division, and due to this bylaw and this section and whatever, employees... And uh, associates of the insurance company are not eligible to recovery fees outside their normal salary. So he is not going to be able to get any of that recovery fee. And Rockford, being very generous, says that, look, you can keep the barbecue. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He'll even throw in half a bag of briquettes and uh, Mm -hmm. some lighter fluid. Yep. Um, So uh, clearly disappointed. Carl and Dot leave the trailer. But then we get just this little moment of family (laughs) reconciliation where Sean comes up and says, Dad, I calculated our ETA. If we leave now, we can get to wherever at this time. Well done, Sean. Well done, Sean. This this dangerous situation has brought the Rongos just a little closer together. Back in the trailer, uh, Califer, under slight duress, apologizes to Rockford Hmm. for, I don't know, his rudeness and not taking him seriously then there's a sound outside something something sound like is being dragged or broken they go out something under the rv is sheared off they're looking at a three hundred dollar repair bill and they're gonna have to stay a couple more days before it's fixed yeah and then we freeze frame on a big rockford eye roll (laughs) 
Because <laughs> you can't let him win. End episode. There's a bit in here, in this final scene, where we learn to our horror that <laughs> uh, Shireen ran off with Skip. Oh, yeah. And that that, that uh, Carl is excited about that because he never cared for Joey sick. Yes. Not knowing that Skip is the villain in this story. I believe he says, oh, he seems like a nice boy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. That is a scuzzbag. Mm-hmm. Parents, you want your, your children to date Joey sick, not Skip. <laughs> I've, I've never heard his last name. Just Skip. While that is clearly a bad choice on her part, his response, again, is a little more like, oh, good for her, right? Like, as opposed to all the being mad at his kids the entire rest of the episode. Yeah. So I'm still going to count that in the reconciliation No, it definitely. Pile. It is, even though we as the audience know that that's not. Oh, <laughs> no, that's a clarification terrible. on Skip's name. And on IMDb, he has a weird pronounced last name, Spies. For one episode he's in, for the other episode, it's Spence. So my guess is that this is a typo. Mm. One other noteworthy thing here. I was expecting after Ronco is cheated of his right. part of the recovery fee, there'd be some technicality to keep Rockford out of it as well. But no. Yeah. I, as far as I can tell from this scene, he gets $15,000. I honestly even had constructed the other shoe in my head that was going to drop. Mm-hmm. Like, I figured he would just get 7500 because the other half was promised to someone who couldn't receive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like he's just going to get the money. Or they reactivated your retainer, so you're just getting your normal retainer pay or something like that. But no, he... He makes it out with uh, this full recovery fee. So this is a rarity. Uh, and we see how Rockford makes the money that lasts him through the next season. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm oh, it's a good going one. Going into it, I, I figured I would. But uh, watching it again, I, it surprised me a little bit about how much I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't remember anything from it but the last 10 to 15 minutes. Because almost all <laughs> of that Ronco stuff is tucked into the very end of it. You meet the mm-hmm. Roncos early on, but hunting them down and, and all that doesn't happen until the last act. And that's all that I had stuck in my head. But yeah, I really learned to appreciate the other parts of it. Yeah, it's a pretty intricate little story that's well told. Yeah. You have your your gang of jewel thieves. Two of them double-cross the other ones uh, in order to try and just get cash for this diamond, which explains why they're trying to get cash instead of trying to fence it, right? Right. But really, as I realized as we went back through it and looking over my notes, in addition to Rockford coming out looking pretty good, um, the other winner here is Donnie, because he just gets a suitcase full of money and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he got a million dollars in cash and was never seen again. Yes. Well, good on you, Donnie. Yeah. He either takes the briefcase or we cut there and there's no reason he wouldn't take it, yeah. right? And then next time we see Califer, it's at the police station. Yeah. Donnie, Donnie ends up winning. His gambit of placing the diamond in uh, Rockford's barbecue pays off. So great, great episode. The, the humor is good. It's less, it's not that there's jokes. It's more just humorous characters interacting. Mm-hmm. But I like that the characters are all counterweighted with a little bit of, of something, either a little bit of pathos or a little bit of yeah, yeah. longing or a little bit of something that makes them not just cartoon right. humor and makes them a little more relatable humor. They're not all just built to serve the plot here. The Roncos have mm-hmm. a vacation that they're on and they have an internal 
a dynamic within the family that, you know, is causing stress to everyone. And and their family has an arc. Yeah. Like, it's a small arc, and we don't really see the end points of it, but, like, we see them going through changes in this episode. And the Ginger's gang, same thing. Mm. You see Ginger kind of going through trying to sweep it up and fix all the problems, and you have Lou and his brother Mike, and their sort of dynamic there because Mike had betrayed them and yeah, everyone's got a thing going on that mm-hmm. gets swirled up in the diamond heist, but not all of it is about the diamond heist. This is a good time to take our break because sure. when we come back for our second half, I think I want to talk a little bit about the diamond and how it, its relationship to the plot. Yeah. Excellent. We'll, we'll go over that and more when we come back for our second half. Yes. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 a Day, uh, where we discuss the 70s detective show, The Rockford Files. Uh, this is the second half of our broadcast, uh, where we talk about the lessons that we learned in this episode, The Queen of Peru, uh, and how we may apply them to our various fictional interactions, whether they're in role-playing games, or whatever we're writing, or, you know, folk songs with a strong narrative content. Whatever we're doing here. So you had something. Uh, do we want to start off with your your thing here? Yeah. So one thing that, that struck me about this episode, um, in addition to the generally very tight nature of it, as we mentioned a couple of times, is the use of the diamond itself. Mm. Uh, so we've talked about MacGuffins before and some episodes that uh, use them pretty, pretty well. For a little more in-depth on that, I believe our... Discussion about uh, the no-cut contract has a lot about that, those audio tapes. Yeah. This episode, uh, that diamond is a MacGuffin in the classic sense, right? It is it is, it is, is the thing that is driving the characters to action. But it's used visually, is also used to create tension in the narrative, which also strikes me as a very Hitchcockian thing. So the MacGuffin, that's a term from, from Hitchcock. And then uh, this classic sense of tension i'm going to paraphrase here but you know you have two people talking at a table if you just watch them talking you're just watching them talking right but if you're listening to them talking while you're looking at the countdown of the bomb that's under the table (laughs) yes now you have tension yeah it's used just with a very light touch in this episode uh again because it's not a super dramatic one but first we get an image of it we see the cam through the camera we see a picture that rockford's looking at of this enormous diamond we get to see Donnie holding a mysterious package. 
that in retrospect we know is the diamond. Then we see the diamond itself in the trash pile. And then we see the cars, each of, you know, each of our principals passing the trash pile where we know the diamond is, which is what we know they're looking right. for. Yeah. And each of those heightens a little bit of the tension around, are they going to get this thing? The arc of this episode is not going to be resolved until this diamond is found. Mm-hmm. And the finding of it is off camera because we don't need to see it. But the fact that we see it just a couple of times in all these different contexts does make a little bit of an undercurrent of it's right there. It's right there. (laughs) Right. Like you're so close, but we only know that because we're the audience and we have the omniscience. Uh, Just that little bit of tension keeps the pace of this one up. I think like it's a very quick episode. It seems to go really, you know, the beats are really fast and the rhythm of it's pretty quick. And I think part of that is because we keep looping back to like, here's the thing. Oh, now it's farther away from our people. Now it's closer. Now it's farther away. And that's one element that I think is well handled in this episode. It's got a nice metaphorical, how it's revealed is is, is kind of tied to what's going on. Because in the beginning, uh, the question is, do they have the diamond? Like Rockford's like, eh, I don't even know if they have the diamond. They, they they could just be a couple of yum-yums yes. with a line of patter <laughs> and daddy shotgun. Yes, exactly. Uh, and we don't know that. And then uh, when one of these yum-yums is l- lurking around Rockford's trailer with a box, and it's just mm-hmm. a little paper box like it's not it's nondescript and it doesn't show off what it is in fact when i, I wrote in my notes because i'd forgotten like how this had all played out i wrote uh i wrote in my notes nondescript package and then <laughs> bomb <laughs> like i couldn't remember i yeah same here i was like is that an explosive because uh, it definitely looked like the kind of thing that would you know a c4 or something like that you know like mm-hmm. then uh when we find out that it's in the in the grill and the grill's been taken by this family that whole bit about it being thrown in the trash is great we get this moment before where rockford's talking about it being just a lump of coal that becomes this diamond it is literally with the charcoal and the ash you know and it's thrown out yeah. and that's when it's lost to everyone and it, uh in, in addition to building the tension it also follows the sort of thought of where the story is going it, it carries uh, a metaphorical weight yeah in addition to the MacGuffin nature yeah. of it in another good example of the tendency of the show for things to carry more than one message right or scenes to do more than one thing uh this episode is a great example of that because almost every scene if it's not doing two things simultaneously is transitioning from carrying one kind of load to another yeah like even the scene with um where the uh the rongos uh pull over and we start off with this kind of character piece showing us carl's nostalgia for how things were um and the greatest you know the greatest beer in japan and stuff yeah that builds their character a little bit shows us a little more what their deal is gives us a little more insight into why we should care about him and his family and then that transitions right into throwing out the diamond yeah yeah exactly Plot-wise, they've pulled over because they need to get rid of their trash. Yeah. And by the way, because you just brought up this scene, kudos to uh, Ken Swafford, who made me want Japanese beer with the way he mm-hmm. talked to it. He was just like, Japanese beer. Oh, it's so good. I think you're absolutely right. Like with the uh, the reference to having the timer under the table here, like we have a scene where Jim is driving down the road on the CB trying to get somebody from indiana on the horn 
Mm-hmm. You know, why is that so compelling? Uh, aside from James Gardner's acting, but it's compelling because you can feel the tension. It feels like it's slipping away from you. How in the hell are they going to find this diamond? You feel the sort of desperation of what's going on here. Right. It takes what is otherwise just a comedic moment, just a very fun, Mm -hmm. funny moment, and gives it this sort of panic that's not just the kind of panic you need for comedy. It's it's the, the kind of panic that also accompanies this thriller kind of thing going there. This is a comedic episode with... With the heart of a thriller. Yeah. You could easily make this a very dark episode. We talked a little bit about how Ginger's gang has this very dark implication to them. Yeah. Um, and how they interact. If the Roncos were seedy instead of Midwestern. Yeah. Or if they were junkies or something like that. Or or, or people on, on the run from the law in their own right, right. You could start getting into a much more mystery thriller direction of like which of these people which of these groups of bad people yeah <laughs> is going to get to the destination first and you wouldn't you wouldn't have to change much right like you still have the beat where carl is like i want in on this yeah it has nothing to do with him being uh, a criminal mastermind is that he's an insurance guy who just knows what it's worth he knows yeah. that there's money involved and uh and is also adept uh at not directly addressing what's going on so he can hold rockford off for as long as the negotiation is required uh so uh, tell me tell me what you think about this a lot of the elements here feel like this could be a game of fiasco yeah right uh so that's the um bully pulpit games coen brothers movie inspired uh rule set for playing a game where everyone has poor impulse control and (laughs) And, and things end up in a fiasco. This story doesn't go that way. Right. But all the elements that are in the setup for a fiasco game are in this story, I think. So if you're not familiar with the game, you start with a playset, which gives you all these different elements to work with. And they might be things like objects, like the diamond and the grill. There'll be things like um, relationships, brothers, right. um, or working for the insurance company, you know, member of the National Guard, maybe not a relationship, but like background elements, you know, these things that seem semi-random, but they all kind of work together in this package in this episode. What Fiasco does is it takes a lot of those elements and then, you know, kind of guides you into making this exciting right? Yeah. who's going to come out on top, who's going to make the worst decision kind of story. <laughs> If this episode appeals to you uh, and you're not familiar with that game, you might want to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Where this episode veers from how like a fiasco game might go is might actually just be Rockford's involvement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he's the he, uh, he's the centering force. Yeah, <laughs> he he does have impulse control issues in other ways, but quite often he's the one who is trying to make the the cautious move, which is not. Typical of a fiasco character. Right. Yeah, I think there's just something about how there's all these disparate elements that don't seem like they should go together. Yeah, yeah. The British mobster guy, the National Guard insurance adjuster, one of the most valuable diamonds in the world, and a a grill full of ashes. Yeah, and a family from Indiana. <laughs> and, and a punk rock boyfriend. Yes, Joey Sick. Uh, so that was something I wanted to ask you. Yeah. We do a little research on the episodes. Uh, a lot of it is IMDb, and so there's <laughs> the comments. And some of the comments about this episode 
are kind of like, what's up with this random British guy as as an element that sticks out? Oh, all right. And I wanted to know if you felt like that, like, or rather, I don't think either of us feel like he sticks out yeah. in a bad way. But what do you think the role of having this character that's so not a standard Rockford villain in this story is? Right. So there's a couple things. Like, if it was a mob boss, you wouldn't have the moment where Rockford says that he's going to find the diamond. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where, after the police get involved, where Rockford decides to go for it. And he's usually hesitant if if the mob is involved. But I don't think that's why that decision was made. Like, I I definitely think that this is uh, typical of Rockford Files, where every character has got to be a thing. It's a good... You know what? I'm going to check up Ginger... Oh, so he is English, the guy who played him. I apologize for my comments on his accent. <laughs> I mean, it could be that they just had the guy, right? Like, they, they just casted him and... Yeah, I mean, he was just uh, a TV actor. He was just in TV shows. But this actually, this kind of segues into what I wanted to talk about. Uh, a fun thing that happens in this episode <laughs> is everyone has a different speech pattern. Mm-hmm. Like I'm looking at the li- the the cast list here and just going down the characters that aren't our normal cast of characters like Rock Rocky and Beth and and Dennis and Chapman. Uh, but you have uh, Califer who is just nonstop ten dollar words reconnoiter and <laughs> we have a word for you. <laughs> it's a lollygagger. He's always going for like the bigger words, the more technical terms because he wants to show that he's he's up on top. You have uh Ronco who has a very midwestern I don't know if he's specifically Indian in in his delivery of things, uh but his whole family has the very midwestern feel to it uh how they speak mm-hmm. and how they you know, Budinsky. Nobody in the Rockford Files would use the term Budinsky until we got to dot Ronco. And then we have Ginger yeah, he's British, but it doesn't stop there. What what what's going on is he's he has these grim turns of phrases. Mm-hmm. The circling birds, the circling birds. <laughs> One reason why they may have chosen someone uh, with that accent to play this role is that you need him to have complete authority uh, without a whole lot in the script to tell you that he has complete authority. You know, like he's mm-hmm. he's got some serious control over his his crew, including Lou. And Lou's whole monologue is in this narrator-type voice. It's third person. He's like, a man's brother comes to him and says... It's great. It's melancholic. And it's it, again, it stands out against everyone else. He's got a way of mm-hmm. speaking that's not the same as everyone else. Uh, Skip has his own way of speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of this like beach bum, surfer, California vibe. Yeah, and even like Donnie, who... Uh, doesn't stand out a whole lot, except Donnie's, I think of him as the guy who would have been scripted by um, Joss Whedon, right? Like, <laughs> we, you know, getting down to the wool hat. Like, you have no idea how hot it is. <laughs> this hat is made of wool, you know? And his, yeah, and his whole thing where he's just like, come on, like, cut me a break here. Why won't this work? So I want to kind of like kind of hit upon the, the neat thing about that is that all these characters stand out and are different from each other. Mm-hmm. Not to criticize the Rockford Files, but we see over the course of five seasons and then the movies, I would say somewhere around 2.3 million gorillas. <laughs> when it comes 
to like thugs that are there to beat up Rockford. You see a mm-hmm. lot of them. And some of them are even played by the same people. Uh, so you can get to a point where you kind of forget who's mm-hmm. who and what's what. And as, as you're watching an episode, if you've got more than one group of antagonists, if they don't stand out as different in the beginning, uh, you can kind of forget who's doing what and where as it's going along. Um, and one of the reasons why this stood out to me is that funny voices is often what, uh, kind of a derogatory way to refer to role playing, right? We're, we're just talking mm-hmm. in funny voices. But what's happening here is not accents, right? We do have one character with an accent, uh, mm-hmm. but where you could have, uh, trouble doing this is by going with accents because then you steer yourself right into an area where you're going to just be culturally insensitive. You're going to, you know, Mm -hmm. bring up a bunch of stereotypes, maybe that you weren't aware that you were actually harboring. (laughs) Because oftentimes we do funny voices when we want to do a character that we have less respect for. Mm-hmm. And if you go into an accent to do a character you have less respect for, yeah. something needs to be examined there. What works here in this episode, it's not the accents, it's how they approach what they say. Like, we, we don't yeah. have respect for Califer, and part of that is because Califer keeps using these giant words when he doesn't have to. He's He's trying to inflate his importance. To try and put words on the words you're using. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, maybe what you're getting at here is the difference between, as you say, an accent or a funny voice. Yeah. And a voice in the sense of what voice does this character have? Right. And that's something that I think, you know, can be done in prose as well. Because um, you're talking about word choices, sentence architecture. Yeah. Rhythm of how someone speaks. And you can even, like, describe how someone sounds, right? Like, if they speak, you know, very softly or that kind of stuff where you can give someone a picture of, like, what should I think this person sounds like? And then you use the actual diction and uh, punctuation and all those things in the written word to differentiate different characters, you know, as they're speaking to each other so that as the reader, you know, you know, who's who and whatnot. I think in a game where... Some people are really great at accents and doing voices, and some people are not. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That is not a thing that I am comfortable doing or like to do. But you can do things like use certain vocabulary or lower your voice, raise your voice, use a different cadence uh, as you speak, those kinds of things to not just differentiate between characters so you know who's who, but also like communicate this person speaks this way because they are this kind of person. Right. I think that this episode is a really good example of that done well because they go to, like you said, they go to the word choice, the sentence structure, the rhythm and, and, and whatnot. So when Fargo came out, mm-hmm. uh, people were excited because they'd never experienced that accent before because they lived on a coast and had never been right. to the Midwest. <laughs> but people like at the time when Fargo came out, I was living in, uh, Wisconsin and, uh, we had, a similar accent. There's a wonderful spectrum of accents that goes yeah. from Canada down through the upper peninsula of Michigan, through Wisconsin, somewhat into Illinois and out to North Dakota. You could kind of, it's like a rainbow mm-hmm. of the same accent. Anyways, in the area, they hated that movie 
because <laughs> they felt like it was making fun of them for having that accent. I think that this this Indiana family, they could have gone that route. They could have like overdone an, some sort of an attempt at an Indiana accent, which honestly I wouldn't be able to do. I don't know what an Indiana accent sounds like. But instead, they just had this like a few word choices that are from the area. And then like I like we talked about earlier, the the friendliness that is not at all helpful yeah. and is trying to kind of get in the way so that they can't be held responsible for the things that they've done. Um, which isn't saying that that's what Indiana people are like. What I'm saying is I experienced that throughout the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is something that you encounter in, in the Chicago area for sure. And and it's done well without, without stumbling on to like just caricature. Yeah. I mean, I guess ap- apologies if we are, downplaying the Indiana stereotyping in this. Uh, if anyone out there is listening and is like, wait a second, this is a caricature of us. Uh, that's, that's our bad and the show's bad. But in this case, I think it is done. It's a bit of a caricature, but it's done with kind of a, an awareness of that. I think it's a little self-aware. Yeah. I think that's, as we mentioned, they're not purely clowns. Right. Yeah. We see Carl get smart to what's going on and make a play for, getting some of this money. We see Sean kind of come around and be like, maybe I shouldn't give my dad such a hard time. Like there's a little bit of uh, humanity there. Uh, Rockford Files does this, you know, is good at giving, you know, giving these characters humanity, but also we're going to lean on this stereotype because we only have 50 minutes and we need to communicate things about these characters. And so you get the Jersey accents, you get people from the Midwest having a certain cadence. You get uh, Jim always going to the Oklahoma uh, oil tycoon as opposed yeah, to any other yeah. high high roller for this uh you know short form fiction that's the role of the stereotype right you don't want to only use stereotypes but the reason they exist is because they communicate something these aren't even archetypes they're they are stereotypes they're just yeah yeah used with like a light touch and used to introduce the character that then we learn more about and that takes them out of being a stereotype right Skip is definitely a stereotype. <laughs> and and the more we learn about him, the worse he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I think that uh um finding ways to make your characters stand out that aren't just blatant but are more built on how they communicate with each mm-hmm. other and with the world around, I think are are that's a, a wonderful way to do things. Maybe a technique to pull out of this is that like Making sure that your character development goes away from the initial right introduction of them. Like if you introduce them with some stereotypical elements, as we learn more about the character, how do we feel like they're more a part of the real world and less leaning on that caricature? Right. Um, I wanted to do a shout out for the comedy in this episode, but I can't draw a lesson. It's hard to draw lessons from comedy, right? Like, there's a certain sort of instinct going. It's the usual stuff about Rockford being denied, uh, <laughs> usually by the uh, a character that's not listening to him or, or bowling over what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked during the first part about how good it is to have all these characters have different pressures from their families or their... But no, actually with the families, right? It's the brothers. They have pressure on each other. And then you have the Ronco family. The only person that really doesn't have any pressure outside of the actual heist is um, uh, Califer, I think. Well, he has pressure from his job. Oh, and he's got the... I'm sorry. I forget that he's a colonel. 
the... <laughs> yeah, he, has, he has some kind of rank in the National Guard. Yeah. So. I think the character that has the least pressure on them outside of just the premise of getting the diamond back is Ginger. Yeah. Like, he's not really in danger from anyone else. He's he's the motive force that's putting everyone else in danger. Yeah. Because he yeah. wants to get that diamond. So in that way, he's actually kind of the least interesting of the characters. He He brings menace. But he himself is kind of, without having the accent and the turns of phrase and everything, he actually probably would not be particularly memorable. Right, yeah. So that's one role of it in this story is like, here's here's how we keep our villain kind of like on top. We give him these distinguishing features. Yeah, I would agree. I think those are the main things that uh, I drew from the Queen of Peru. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um. Yeah. Fun episode. It was it was a blast to watch and uh, talk about. I think it joins our other season four episodes as uh, definitely recommended. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not quite sure what our retainer was for this one, but at least we <laughs> yeah. got our recovery fee of $15,000. So, <laughs> And only because we're not employed by the insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go do, go do some grilling, maybe take a trip up yeah. to Little Denmark, and then uh, we'll be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.